this morning, uh, but the theme is spiritual warfare. And we fight our battles with God's Word. And I will tell you, every marriage is in a spiritual warfare. And you'll see why. Every marriage, it's a battle. And you need to be in God's Word. You, you, you need stuff like we're, we're providing. That's why we're doing it. You know, we, we go through um, a lot of work to put together uh, an event like Saturday, March 12th. And it's to strengthen. That's why we call it Marriage Strengthening Conference. We want to strengthen marriages because I'm a product of divorce, and I, I don't want to see more divorces. I want to see more marriages working through um, what they're, what they're, you know, whatever's happening. So I just want to encourage you. Um, and if you're not married, you can still come to the marriage conference. It's not just for married folks, because you're going to hear some stuff that it will set you, set you there and, and, and help you prepare. So if you're engaged, if you've been dating a while, come. Be a part of it. Let somebody know. So you sign up. Uh, you can go to our website and see a link to sign up, or you can simply text the word marriage to our phone number, um, and you can sign up. You'll see the link for that. So um, we're talking about spiritual warfare, and, well, we'll get there. Um, but the title, or the, the, the title here that I have is Big Questions and Small Answers. I'll kind of explain why that is. I taught uh, math for 16 years in the public high school. 16 years I taught mainly geometry and algebra. But about halfway through my teaching career, I was presented with the opportunity, I say I drew the short straw, to teach a course called AP Statistics. I didn't like statistics in college. I wasn't very excited about teaching it in high school. And they asked me to teach it, asked me to teach it. Uh, put it on my plate, this is what you're teaching. And I will tell you, if you've ever been a teacher, if you've ever had to teach something new, uh, the first year is tough. It was really tough. And AP stands for Advanced Placement. It's a college-level class. They take a test at the end. They can earn college credit. And I struggled that first year. Every minute of my prep was spent preparing just for the next day. Any teachers can relate to that right now? Yeah, I know my, my wife, uh, is, it's a battle in itself. And so I could only handle questions that I assigned. But it's AP. It's, there's some really bright kids taking these classes, and they would ask me some really tough questions. And sometimes my pride would take a hit because I didn't have all the answers. Guys, is not struggle when we don't have all the answers? Uh, our prideful men, yeah, and it was, it was hard. And there was one girl in particular that I remember, she needed to go to church more because she had no grace whatsoever. When she would ask these questions, and I didn't have the answer, and she'd just give me that look. And I'm like, give you a Bible. <laughs> Took years to forgive her, but I did. Um, but I don't, I, don't, I don't have to teach math anymore. I teach the Bible now. I do that full-time, and I love it, and I love that I have very bright students as well. Intellectual, also inquisitive. And you ask great questions. You ask tough questions all the time. And I love it because when I don't know the answer, you have a lot of grace. Just remember that. <laughs> you have grace. I don't get embarrassed if I don't know the answer. You ask me a tough question about God, 
about the Bible. I don't get embarrassed if I know the answer because I'm learning just like you are. And I don't have all the answers. I'm not God. Uh, I, I, will, I will try to find those answers, but you know what? There's tough questions. I'm going to be honest with you. There's some big questions, and all we're going to get right now is small answers. And I think that's because we just can't quite comprehend all that God wants to show us. I mean, we're human beings with big questions for God, and we just can't quite get it. I don't, I don't think we'll, we'll, we'll have... Some questions are just, they're just too much for right now for us. Now, I know you think maybe, well, well Jesus was here. You know, he would he'd be able to answer our questions, our big questions. But if you know the Gospels, and you've been with us for the last year, I've been going through the harmony of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know Jesus spoke in parables a lot of times, and the disciples were like, what did he just say? I don't get that at all. And specifically, here we are at the end of his life, leading up to Easter when he's crucified. And you see in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to be in chapters 21 through 25 for the next few weeks. In Matthew 21 and 22, there's four big questions that come up. Four big questions. And the religious leaders ask a couple of them because they want to trip up Jesus. <laughs> trip up Jesus with their big questions. But because they don't believe Jesus is God, he doesn't even give them an answer half the time. All right? he, he, just, he just dumbfounds them. So let me just show you that real quickly as we lead into um, spiritual warfare here. But Matthew 22, 15, verse 15. I, I pr- bring these up on the screen for you. But the Pharisees went out. The Pharisees were the follow letter of the law. You know, They knew the law. All 613 commands. They knew them all. But they plotted how they could entangle Jesus in his words. And they asked a big question. Their big question was, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? By asking that question, they thought they could trick Jesus because they thought it was a lose-lose thing for him. They, they thought, well, if he says, um, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, well, then that makes him a friend of the Romans, and you're not really uh, a prophet. You're not one of us. But if he says no, well, then they would put the Romans, sick the Romans on him and have him arrested, and that would be their way of getting rid of him. So Jesus answers their question by saying, show me a coin. And he says, whose picture's on the coin? Well, it was Caesar. Caesar was on his own money. And therefore he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, uh, Caesar's and give to God what is God. And when they heard it, verse 22, they marveled and they left him and went away. Before they left him, Jesus dropped the mic, all right? And he walked away. Because they couldn't, they couldn't trick him. They couldn't entangle him in his words. And there was a little while later, the Sadducees took their turn, another religious group, politicians mainly, and they asked about marriage in heaven, which they didn't even believe in, by the way, and he rocked their world. They kept coming at him with these big questions. You can't trick Jesus. It says, verse 33, the crowd heard it and they were astonished at Jesus' teaching. Then Jesus asked them a very big question. He said, what do you think about the Messiah, the Christ? 
Whose son is he? Boy, they, they kind of probably huddled up and said, you know, well, we know the textbook answer. You know, it, it's, it's, he's the son of David, because that's what the Old Testament said. He's the son of David. And so they blurted that out, and he said, well, and he goes on to tell him to explain, well, why did David then say that, that he's my Lord? Why would a person say their son is their Lord? And they were just like, they couldn't grasp it. They, they couldn't even grasp that. So this is how it ends, with all those big questions for Jesus. Verse 46, no one was able to answer him a word, nor from, what, from that day did anyone dare ask Jesus any more big questions. Now today, we have God's word, and we have big questions still. And sometimes we will only have small answers. And the reason is because God sees the big picture, and that's very hard for us to see. We have small, finite minds. And God honestly can only reveal so much to us. If he tried, it would be like me trying to teach Evie, a one-year-old baby, AP statistics. How would that go? Evie, this is what it means to be statistically significant. It's not going to work. She can't comprehend it. And that's the way it is with us. I think it's very hard for us to grasp what God knows. So we have big questions. Sometimes we're only going to get small answers. And today, I'm telling you, spiritual warfare is such a big question. All, I, I mean, I, I had, I could be here for an hour. The soup might get cold. All right, by the time you get down there, if I preached all that I know and, and, and studied on for spiritual warfare, but I dwindled it down so you'll get there and it'll still be hot, okay? Here's some of the questions people have about spiritual warfare. Is the devil real? Are there demons? Can those demons mess with us? Can they possess us? How do I protect myself and my family? How do I fight my battles? which is what we sang about. If you ever wanted to know answer to some of those questions, raise your hand, just so I know. Okay, all right. And if you didn't raise your hand, oh, I'm so glad you're here today, because if you say you're a Christian, you're a follower of Christ, you just put a target on your back, all right? And the devil will come for you. Satan will come after you. His demons will come after you because he does not want you to worship God. That's spiritual warfare. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And I thank the Lord for his word. I thank, you that, uh, I thank him that we have the Bible and we have some answers, even though I think they're small answers, because honestly, if God pulled back the curtain for spiritual warfare, it would blow our minds. It would totally blow our minds if we were able to see everything that's going on. It would just be too much for us. So with that being said, Here's a little something on spiritual warfare. First of all, <clears throat> what does the Bible tell us and teach us about the devil? Is the devil real? Is Satan real? Well, <clears throat> there's three angels mentioned in the Bible. Three angels are mentioned by name in the Bible. Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. And I'm inclined to believe that these were the big three. 
the archangels, the chief angels, because God has an army. He created angels just like he created us. And these angels, if there is truly three chief ones, Isaiah the prophet tells us that Lucifer fell from heaven because of his pride. So one of the big three, if you will, I like to say big three because, you know, we're in Motown, right? We know big three here. Revelation says that one-third of the angels also fell from heaven. One might put that together and say Lucifer was in charge of those one-third, and they were removed from heaven because God created them. He has the power to do that, and they rebelled. They had pride. Satan, Lucifer, wanted his angels to worship him. That's what we understand about the devil. And so God removed him and those angels, which now... We don't call them angels, we call them demons. And we call Lucifer Satan, which means accuser, because he accuses us in front of God. Makes us feel guilty. And he call, we call him the devil, that means slanderer, because he slanders us. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus says. Now, is demon possession real? We know Satan's real. We know, we know Lucifer, the devil, he's real. But he has all these followers. And by the way, how many are there? That's kind of a question I, never, I didn't think about saying, but Le- Jesus once said, I could call upon legions. Legions, that's thousands upon thousands of angels. Innumerable, we don't know how many. But one-third of them are now demons, and they get to roam the earth until a certain time because God banished them from heaven. That means they're here amongst us. In multiple times in the Bible, we see demons possessing people, evil spirits going into people because angels are, they're spirits. They don't have a body, but they possess others. And um, here's the good news if you're a Christian, a born-again Christian, not a Christian by uh, the fact that your parents took you to church your whole life, not because you think you're a good person and that makes you a Christian. No, you're a Christian because you're born again by the Holy Spirit. Jesus explained that in John chapter 3 very clearly. So if you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit. You cannot be possessed by a demon. A house divided against itself cannot stand. So that's the good news. That's the good news. But even if you have the Holy Spirit, even if you are a genuine Christian, the, whole, uh, the Holy Spirit in you, demons can and will mess with you. And they can do serious harm. Look at an example here in Acts chapter 19. There's a story here that took place. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of the Apostle Paul. He was a missionary and he was traveling around the Mediterranean Sea. He had gone on three big mission trips. And on one of these mission trips, he was doing, not he, God was doing through him amazing things. People were being healed, and evil spirits were coming out of people. There was a Jewish high priest named Sceva. He had seven sons, and they became exorcists using a magic formula. Now, you may not believe me, and you may think, this guy's wacko. What's he talking about right now? It's right in the Bible. Check it out for yourself. Acts chapter 19. They became exorcists using a magic formula. This is what they would say. An incantation. They would repeat these words. 
I command you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims to come out. And some demons came out. And then there was this one that didn't. This one in particular, verse 15, the evil spirit spoke back and said, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man who was possessed by the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. That means he beat the crap right out of them. And they fled out of the house naked and wounded. From this example, here's what we can learn and know. Demons are stronger and smarter than we are. Demons understand authority, and they fear God. Demons cannot be removed by using a magic formula. In Jesus' name is not abracadabra, open sesame, come out. It doesn't work like that. Only God has authority over demons. Only God gives that authority to some people like Paul. Do not assume that you have the authority that God has not given you. Do not rebuke a demon unless God gives you that authority. And I say that because... I have met many Christians who try to rebuke demons all the time. I don't know if God has given them that authority, but they do it. They rebuke demons all the time. Let me read to you what it says in Jude. Jude was Jesus' half-brother. Verse 9, when the archangel Michael was contending with the devil, disputing about the body of Moses, He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment against the devil. What did he say? What did the archangel Michael say? The Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. Because he understood. He didn't have power to do that. Only God has the power. And Jesus' other brother, James, chapter 4, verse 7, he says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God, and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The word resist is the same as stand firm, which is what Paul says in Ephesians 6 when you put on the spiritual armor of God. Resist. You don't go after the devil. You stand firm in God's armor with God's weapons. That's what we know about spiritual warfare from the word of God. The devil and his demons are real. And they don't want you to worship God. They're here to steal, kill, and destroy you. Because spiritual warfare is real. Now, how do you know... Are you still with me? I I didn't make anybody run off, did I? All right, hang in there, okay? This has a happy ending. If that's what you're looking for, all right, I'm, I'm with you on that. How do you know if what you're going through is spiritual warfare. You're going through some stuff right now. I know you are. I know I am. You got a problem. You got a struggle. You got a battle you're in. I know it. We all are. And honestly, it seems worse than it's ever been before. Amen to that? How do you know if that's spiritual warfare? That's the question that I asked myself with my own struggles. How do I know this is spiritual warfare? Let me take you to Luke 13. About a few months before Jesus' 
uh, going to the cross. He was in Perea, and he he tells this this thing happened in Perea, chapter ten, uh, thirteen, verse ten. I'll read read to you a few verses here. Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath day. You know how it goes on the Sabbath day. Behold, there was a woman. She had a disabling spirit for eighteen years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. I'm thinking she went to the doctor. We don't know if she actually knew she had a disabling spirit. She may have just thought, I have some back problems, and they don't go away. Not, uh, this is a problem. We don't know. Jesus saw her, called her over, verse 12, and said, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God, which you would do, wouldn't you, if God healed you? But it was on the Sabbath. Of course, the Pharisees hated that because you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath day. But then he says in verse 16, Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, shouldn't she be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Satan bound her for 18 years. Now maybe she knew that. Maybe she knew. Maybe she... She, she just understood this is, a, this is an evil spirit that's doing this to me. Or maybe she didn't. Maybe she didn't understand it. This is a question we kind of have for ourselves, right? You're going through something? You got a problem? You got a struggle? You got a battle? And you're wondering, is this spiritual warfare here? There's a lot of Christians, not nah, I say a lot, there's some Christians that will tell you every problem you have is spiritual battle. Every problem is a spiritual warfare. Every problem you have is a demon that needs to be rebuked. And they've memorized Ephesians 6.12. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Everything to them is a demon. But then there's some Christians that will tell you every problem you have is a sin problem. It's your flesh, and they completely ignore spiritual warfare. And they'll point to Romans 8 and Galatians 5. Romans 8, 13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. Paul also says in Galatians, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So how do you know? If your situation is spiritual warfare, or if it's your battle with sin, your battle with your flesh, is your flesh winning? Here's my suggestion. Assume it's both. Assume it's both. And I say that because the solution is the same for both. The solution is exactly the same for both situations. Let me tell you the reality of evil in this world, in your life, in our everyday um, living. Satan and demons have been here since the beginning. Satan is partly responsible for our sinful nature. He tempted Eve to eat from the tree that God said don't eat from. So he's been here since the beginning. And, And if he's been here the whole time, Guess who understands human behavior better than anybody else in this whole world, better than any psychologist or psychiatrist? Who understands human behavior and human weakness better than anyone? 
Satan and his demons. They understand our weaknesses. And they are trained to do what they do best, steal, kill, and destroy. And they want to divide you from God, from family, and from friends. They want to isolate you and attack you. And that's not even the scariest part. The scariest part is you, your flesh. Because the reality of our flesh, our sin problem, is that it wins most of the time. The alarm clock goes off. Yep. That's how quick it, that's how fast it can happen. We all struggle with lust and greed and jealousy and anger and pride and addictions. And the list goes on and on. The spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. You know it. That's us. That's the scariest part, I think. Satan probably needs a third-string demon to make us mess up. Doesn't take much. So what does spiritual warfare look like? I'm going to kind of pick on the men for this part, because our biggest weakness is typically lust and pride. Men struggle with lust. Men struggle with pride. Amen? Men, you're willing to admit it, that's good. Um, So what does it look like? Well, men, you could be scrolling on social media or the internet, and a random video will pop up of a woman who is barely wearing any clothes. That wasn't random. It popped up, tempting you to click on it so you can see more. Demons have their algorithms, too. Men, your friend could invite you over to see his brand new, shiny, expensive toy. And he'll go on and on about how awesome his new toy is, and he'll tell you that he deserves it because he works hard. And then you'll hear that voice in your head, I work hard, too. I deserve one of those, too. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's spiritual warfare. It's real. It's always going on. And if you're trying to get closer to God, Satan and his demons are going to try that much harder to pull you away and to knock you off course. It's going to happen. I also think every day is a battle with our flesh. The flesh and our spirit are in opposition of one another. Go home and read Romans 8. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about there. So if you assume both, then you learn how to fight your battle. Whether your battle is truly spiritual warfare, could be all that, or it could be all your flesh winning. How do you win? How do you, how do you fight your battle? The answer is definitely not on your own. Never on your own. Only by the power of God can you fight your battle. I hear people sometimes talk about how uh, the, the, it's, well, I'd say the common uh, failure is when people think that their self-control, their own self-control will help them win the battle. I'm telling you, they're way smarter than you are. We don't have that much self-control. 
but by the Spirit, we have self-control. God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. So let me tell you how we fight our battles. We fight our battles in our head. It's in your head. It's in your mind. You want to win spiritual warfare, you want to overcome your flesh, it has to happen within your mind. And I'm not talking about a Jedi mind trick. I'm talking about overcoming your stinking thinking with the Word of God. Because we all have some stinking thinking going on, don't we? Yeah. The Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth, this is the main verse that you would want to memorize, 2 Corinthians 10.5. I'm going to read you 3 and 4 first. He said, for though we walk in the flesh, we, do, we are not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. This is verse 5. We destroy those arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And here's the part that I memorize. We take captive every thought and we make it obedient to Christ. You take captive every thought and you make it obedient to Christ. Do you know why Paul was so successful as a missionary? I told you he took three mission trips around the Mediterranean Sea. Went to cities, planted churches in Ephesus and Philippi and Corinth and all these different places. Why was he so successful? I'm telling you, it wasn't because he had an awesome stature. He wasn't tall, dark, and handsome like I am. All right? He didn't have amazing oratory speaking skills. Nobody argues with that. I don't know. <laughs> Verse 10, Paul wrote, You guys say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. You get a really good picture of the Apostle Paul right there. He wrote strong letters. He said he, he, he didn't pull punches in his, in his letters. But Paul, when you would have, if you would have met him, you would have met a puny man who, who spoke simple words. But that wasn't his power. His power was in the fact that God used him. It says in verse 7, Paul, Paul had been given a vision. It says in verse 7, to keep me from, or um, yeah, verse 7, chapter 12, to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan. Messenger is the word for angels. Agalogos, I think, is the word, and it's demon. That demon kept doing this to Paul. To keep him from being conceited. Three times he asked the Lord, please take this away. But the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. Why? Because my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast, Paul says, all the more gladly of my weakness so the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul understood this truth. He could not convince anyone to become a Christian. God had to convince people to become Christian. God's word does the convincing. God's word tears down the walls just like God tore down the walls of Jericho. Think about that. God's word destroys arguments and lofty opinions. There are lots of people here, I know it, that have walls up to believing what I'm talking about. To even believing that, that Jesus died for you and that you can become a Christian today. But you have a wall up 
And the only way that wall is coming down, it's not because of what I say, it's not how convincing I can be, it's because God's word will tear it down. That's the only way it's coming down, by the power of God's word. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of your heart. That's how powerful God's word is. We don't have a Bible that's a history book that's 2,000 years old. No. We have the living word of God. God still speaks through the Bible. And when you get into it, when you read your Bible, when you read, you're reading, you're listening to God talk to you. It's the living word of God, and that is how you fight your battles. That's how Paul did it. He would go into a city not knowing if they were going to kill him, string him up, kick him out, but he would preach the word. He would tell the truth about Jesus, and the good news is that you can be saved. You can go to heaven if you surrender your life to the Lord. If you ask him to forgive you, the blood of Jesus will heal you and you can go to heaven. And he would explain that, and he would teach that. And sometimes people would just, you read it for yourself, you'll see. The walls would come tumbling down, and they would believe, but some, the walls would stay up. But it's God's word that tears down the walls. And it's God's word that will help you fight your battle when you have stinking thinking. Let me tell you how the process of thought to action works. Sometimes we call them behavior loops or habit loops. But you have a thought, and then it ends up with an action. I break it down for you here. I'm going to pick on the ladies now. A woman goes shopping, because that's what she does. But let's say she has a reason this time to go shopping, and she needs a dress for a wedding. So she goes out shopping at her favorite store for, for her dress, and while she's shopping for a dress she sees something that really catches her eye. A stunning pair of shoes. (laughs) And here comes the thought. The thought is, I'd like to have those shoes. It's just a thought. I'd like to have those shoes. And then what do you do next, ladies? (laughs) Buy them. You just went from thought to action. By the way, that's how addicts work. Thought to action. We'll get into that in a second. No, usually you try them on. You say, how much are they? And then if they're too much, you say, oh, I can't afford them. So you look at more dresses. And then after a little while, the thought becomes dwelling, fantasizing. You're thinking about those shoes. I'd look so good in those shoes. They, they would match my other dress that I have. My, my friends will be so envious of, of these shoes. If you've ever seen Friends, you know about Monica's boots. Let's say by some miracle, you get a dress, ladies, and you leave the store and you don't buy the shoes. But then comes the third part, the stronghold. A stronghold is a fortress, a castle. It's, a, it's basically 
having this thought just circulate in your head over and over. You can't stop thinking about those shoes. You can't even sleep and eat. You just need those shoes. It's a stronghold in your life. And then you take action and you buy the shoes, even if you can't afford the shoes. All the men are smiling right now. If they're married, they would hold that smile back a little bit. And all the women are not happy with me right now. But remember, Jesus said, forgive seven times 70, ladies. That's a humorous example, but there are examples that are not so funny. Because addiction is not funny. And I'm not just talking about drug addiction. I'm talking about all the other kinds of addictions that we see going on. There's gambling addictions. There's sex addictions. There's shopping addictions. There's video game addictions. There's internet addictions. There's a lot of addictions. And how do you fight these addictions? How do you fight these battles? How do you fight any problem, any struggle? You take captive every thought and you make it obedient to Christ. At every level, you must take it to the cross. You can't control a thought. Thoughts are often involuntary. They pop into your head. You don't even realize it. They're not even invited. But you can take that thought to the cross. Especially if it's a bad thought, if it's stinking thinking, you crucify it immediately with the truth. Take it to the cross. For example, let's say you have a really hard day. Anybody have any hard days lately? Yeah, you have a really hard day. And you think you need a fix. And I don't know what your fix is. Your fix might be going on Amazon and buying something. Your fix might be a drink. It might be a smoke. I don't know what your fix is. But let's say you had a hard day and you think you need a fix. Right there. That's a thought. Take it to the cross. Take it to the cross. You don't need a fix. What you need is to pray and to ask God to help you. Renew your mind. Take that thought to the cross. Make it obedient to Christ. Let's say you have two hard days in a row and you begin to dwell on that. Oh, my life's falling apart, man. Nobody understands what I'm going through. Life sucks, man. This is just hard. I I just need my fix. If I have it, I'll feel better. That's what we do. If I have it, I'll feel better. Right there. Take it to the cross. You you don't need to go there. You don't need to take that action. You need his strength. You need to renew your mind so he can transform you. And you do that with his word. You You have verses already prepared that you can go to and read through and meditate on. I ordered two books For our men's ministry, every man's battle, which is lust. And I've read through that book a long time ago, and there's verses in there. That's the the battle. You renew your mind with the word. You were bought at a price. Honor God with your body. That's one of the verses. You renew your mind. You take it to the cross. But let's say you're past that, and you have a horrible week, and you just can't take it anymore anymore. And you think the only way out is the fix. In fact, I've heard some addicts say, it's the only way to feel normal again is if I get my fix. That's that's a stronghold. That's a stronghold. 
but you can still take it to the cross. Because God, his word, has the power to break down the walls. That's what a stronghold is. It's a wall that says, this is the only way that I get better and feel normal again. And you renew your mind, and God tears it down. But I'll be honest with you, if you're at a stronghold point, you may need a counselor to help you walk through it. You may need someone to really walk with you, because it's a battle. And what if, after all of that, you still take action? Is there any help for you? Because when you take action, there are consequences. Aren't there? There's big consequences. Even when there's consequences, you can still take it to the cross, start over, and be forgiven. You can still take it to the cross. And I'm not suggesting, folks, this is easy. I know some of you are, are listening and thinking, yeah, I've been, I've been battling this for years. My struggle has been going on for years. For many of us, it's a, it's a deeply ingrained habit. And when it's a habit, it's so ingrained, it's so part of your life. Sometimes, I, we heard it over here when I was talking about the shoes, you see it, you have the thought, and you just jump right to the action. Boom, I have a thought, trigger, boom, action. You don't even go through the process. You just go right there, and you take action. Life sucks. Drink. Life sucks. Get high. Life sucks. Buy something. Life sucks. It's, sometimes we just, how do you get out of that? How do you get out of that, that trench that you're in, that, that rut that you're in? Take it to the cross. Take every thought, make it obedient to Christ. You've got to create a new path. You've got to have a new behavior. A new behavior. Because the triggers are never going to stop. The thoughts are going to come, and you need a new path. And that new path is God's word. Take every thought and make it obedient to Christ. I invite my wife to come up and sing this song. This was something that she felt very strongly would be a powerful way to end today's message, and um, you're invited just to sit and just think about the words. They won't come up on the screen, but just think about the words and pray and have some time with God. I invite you just to think about whatever it is your struggle is. It's a bad habit. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's just the, the thought, the stinking thinking just keeps coming back, coming back, coming back, and you want to be free. You want to win the battle. Well, God wants to rescue you. God wants to rescue you. Right? Um, I know personally, I've been at a place in this past year where, I mean, you, plenty of people have said, how you doing, Jamie? You say, I'm hanging in there. Buy a thread. That's about to tear apart. And for me, just God's the only one who can fix it. And in prayer, just music is my go-to. And this song in particular, when you just feel like, I just can't. This is just too hard. I can't fight this. I usually figure out it's because I've been trying to fight it on my own. And I forget that God can rescue me. 
And I've sang the song a lot of times because I forget a lot. I'm, I'm guessing I'm not the only one that forgets a lot. Um, so when you feel like that, I just hope you can just recall this song and know, like, he hears you. He's right with you. And I didn't plan to do this. I haven't been playing the ukulele for all that long. Um, this is the first time I've ever had it plugged in on a stage in front of people. So, but the Holy Spirit told me yesterday that I had to. So I had to listen. So I hope you're blessed. And I hope that you can just relate and recall this song when you feel broken because I know we're all there. me 
God wants to rescue you, and um, we're here to help you and to be here for you. Um, if you want prayer, I encourage you to, to stick around, come forward, and we have our prayer team that will pray with you. I'll pray with you. Jamie will pray with you. Um, I thank you for being here. Um, you needed to be here. It was God's plan for you to be here, to hear this message, and I pray it was a blessing to you. Uh, I, I pray that um, as we share with each other and as we go downstairs and, and have a meal together, um, we'll continue worshiping together, fellowshipping together, because God wants us to be together. Remember, Satan wants to separate you and isolate you so he can attack you, but God wants you to be together, and he says don't give up meeting together. It's important that you come together. And uh, so I'm so excited for what God is doing here at Life of Purpose and I'm excited for what he's going to do next week as we see people are being baptized in the name of Jesus next week. Will you stand to be dismissed? May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and may the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you as you go in peace. You're dismissed. God bless you.